Welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners, Fintrepid Solutions, and Pivotal Advisors. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from Phoenix, Arizona, or actually Gilbert, Arizona, to be frank. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast and you're wondering what it is we do here at Tycoons of Small Biz, we're a podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. We started in May of 2020, and we've recorded essentially every week since then, so we're a little over 130 episodes in. And our job is to highlight a new business owner every single week and have them tell their story, talk about their successes, talk about their failures, and do anything that we can to to prop up the small business owner, which we believe is truly the, the backbone of the American economy. So with that being said today, we definitely have a tycoon of small biz on the program with us today. We've got Gary Hutchison coming to us from Connecticut. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Austin. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. I got a Tell you, uh, I never consider myself a tycoon by any means. I don't think anyone who knows me would consider me to be a tycoon as well. But uh, anyway, I'm I'm happy to be here and uh, whatever I can talk about as far as our story and what we've done, I'm happy to do that as well. Yeah, you bet. Well, I'm I'm sure by the end of this episode, our audience will feel that you're definitely a tycoon. Your background lends to that. You've got ex- extensive background working with Fortune 500 companies and, and the like. And so you've translated some of the things that you learned there into a smaller organization that you and your wife own together and and, uh, and run together, correct? That is right. Uh, we bought the company about 15 years ago. Uh, we brought it to, together. We set it up um, as we made that purchase and that she's the major shareholder. Uh, then I own the balance of the stock of the company. Um, for the first few years, um, she was here with our children, our five children, as they finished high school. And then when they went off to college, uh, she came over and uh, joined us on a full-time basis, held a number of different roles and positions. And uh, now she's the chief executive officer of the company, and I report to her. So uh, it works out well for us. Yeah, well, as somebody who's been married for 24, almost 25 years now, um, I think it's probably fair to say that you report to her at work and at home. <laughs> I hear that comment a lot, and um, I think it's for the most part true. Uh, she certainly takes the lead here in a number of things as far as uh, our activities and the things that we do, and that's a good thing. She's really creative, got, has a lot of energy, and over there as far as the day-to-day, uh, she's as vo- as involved as I am and uh, very much part of the leadership and the decisions that we make. Yeah. So you told us a little bit about your, your family already. It sounds like you've got five kids, you and your wife, you know, obviously own this business together. But tell us a little bit, about, a little bit more about you personally. Where, where did you grow up? You know, what, how old are your kids now? What are they doing? Do you have grandkids? You know, whatever you'd like us to know about you personally. Yeah, it is uh, a lot of what we do and think about. It's certainly family-based and family-centered. Um, 
all of our children are grown and gone, as, as I mentioned. Um, our oldest is uh, here in Connecticut with us. Actually, um, her husband, our son-in-law, is with us in the company. He's our general manager. He's been with us, I think, about six years. And, and that's just been a real privilege and a, and a blessing to have uh, our daughter and her four children uh, with us and uh, a family member being a key and important part of the company as well. Our, our youngest, who is also, he's a son. He's not with the company. He works for Priceline. He's doing uh, quite well with them, has had a number of good opportunities and experiences. And then we have uh, our second daughter, actually, Austin. She's out in your area. She's uh, in Mesa, Arizona, with uh, her five children. Third, uh, our third daughter is in Quincy, Illinois, with her five. And then our son, who was with us for a number of years at the company, uh, he and his uh, wife relocated out to Roseburg, Oregon. That's where she's from. Uh, they have three children. Um, just announced to us on Sunday that a fourth is on the way. So it'll be 18 uh, in all. And so we're pretty excited about that. Originally, I'm from, uh, I'm from Alabama. Grew up in the Panhandle section of Florida. Uh, when I was in the seventh grade, we moved uh, to Alabama, quite involved in sports and athletics. And for a while, that my whole mission in life was to uh, play in the NFL, the National Football League. Uh, don't know that I was quite good enough, and I had a couple of injuries along the way. And that sort of um, took that out of the picture uh, for sure. I did play for a year at a small liberal arts uh, college in North Carolina, had uh, yet additional uh, injuries and surgeries and so forth. So I uh, came back home, I uh, went to junior college for a bit. Then I took two years off, actually, um, and served as a, as a missionary for our church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I had the real opportunity to uh, be on the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona. New Mexico, the Four Corners, Colorado, Utah. Um, yeah. That was an outstanding experience for me. Really set the tone for a lot of the decisions I, I made in my life. Um, you know, as I've thought back upon it, um, it was really important for me as well in terms of learning how to communicate. Um, again, a lot of the people there, especially then, which was 40 plus years ago, did not speak English. Some did. And I was learning Navajo, especially early on when I had very limited language skill and capability. I used to think a lot about as we prepared to meet with people and, and then talk with them, teach them. I thought a lot about how am I going to communicate this, um, ways that I could demonstrate, ways that I could try to think through what their frame of ref reference was. Uh, try to understand uh, what they may be thinking as I was talking with them. And I think uh, that skill that I learned, if you can call it that, as far as um, in, you know, in sales um, opportunities or sales meetings and uh, large corporation uh, presentations, thinking about who the audience is, what they want to know, how I can communicate with them. Uh, I think that has uh, really helped me a lot in my life. Uh, I did, uh, after my mission experience, uh, 
went back out to uh, Utah to uh, Brigham Young University, uh, undergraduate with a, a Bachelor of Science with a marketing emphasis, and then came home in state to the University of Alabama with a um, financial concentration with my MBA. So um, that's sort of the, the early years there, Austin. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great summary and, and several things that you and I have in common uh, that you mentioned. So I grew up in Utah. I did not do my undergraduate uh, work at BYU, basically because I played too much in uh, high school and did not uh, have good enough grades to get in. And so uh, I went to my undergrad at Cal State Fullerton, where I got a bachelor's degree in French. And then I was able to then go back and get my MBA from BYU. At that point, you know, grades were were better. But then not only that, I had an entrepreneurship background that they wanted in, in the MBA program at BYU. And so right. that was a great experience for me. And other thing that I would mention is that I, I also served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I served in France and Belgium, and my wife served there as well. That's where we met. We have a son that has been home almost two years now. It'll be two years next month uh, from his mission in Denmark. And one last point of uh, connection for you is he is he will be officially engaged in the next few weeks to a young woman who is a quarter Navajo. Oh, really? Well, well, congratulations. That'll be exciting for you. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. So, yeah, her her dad grew up uh, a good portion of his life on on the reservation in Page, Arizona. So, yeah, right. Been there many times. It's a nice little uh, uh, border town there on the reservation. Yeah, yeah, beautiful area for sure. Um, we love to go up there for Lake Powell, of course, and, and spend time up there. So, all right, well, let's let's jump into uh, the business side of things. So tell us, you know, a little bit about your career. I mean, you spent a, a good portion of your career working for Fortune 500 companies. So what have you, I guess, let, let me give it a two-part question. What did you learn, you think, there that was most beneficial? And the communication part from your mission, I think, is huge. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as well. But what did you find most beneficial about working in the Fortune 500 companies? And what have you enjoyed most now about owning and managing a small business? Yeah, well, I uh, finished my uh, MBA at the university in uh, 1980. And as I was doing so, uh, Kimberly Clark, the, a well-known consumer products company, they came over and they came over regularly to recruit at the university, they had a very, very large uh, newsprint pulp paper mill there in state. And they often came over and recruited. And uh, they were one that I uh, interviewed with and received an offer to uh, join Kimberly Clark. Um, you know, the, um, at, at this time and certainly for a number of years, Kimberly Clark has been almost exclusively a consumer products company. And that's been a really good strategy for them. At that time, they were sort of half and half, but they were transitioning to move away from the commodity-oriented uh, printing and writing and uh, publication paper business, which they had several mills at the time. So they were selling them off and using the funds from, uh, from those transactions to help uh, invest further in, in consumer products like 
tissues and diapers and so forth. But I was there at that facility, um, just good fortune for me, um, the vice chairman of the board of directors of Kimberly Clark uh, and the chief operating officer uh, had his primary residence and an office there at that facility. And um, a couple of years later, I was uh, invited to join his staff and work with him for a couple of years. And he really helped me quite a bit. Um, and moving me into other divisions, um, getting into marketing, and so a lot of my background was then marketing, product management, those kinds of things, which again has really helped me a lot in the last 15 years, learning all about value propositions and how you differentiate uh, your company, your products, your services, uh, how you have to think through that really clearly so that. Um, when you're talking to a company, uh, and it's really a challenge as a small business like we are, depending upon who I'm calling on and depending upon who their supplier base may already be uh, populated with. But you know, what's different about SSI? Uh, what can SSI do for me that a lot bigger companies um, already do or maybe not? What products or services can they offer? So again, thinking, hopefully drawing upon my, uh, my background in terms of teaching the Navajo people and thinking about how to communicate, trying to learn as much as I could about those companies and the people that I would be meeting with so that I could um, structure the presentation and the things that I was talking about in a way that would hopefully address their uh, needs and concerns and do it in a way that maybe others didn't. And we've had some success in doing that. Um, and one way you could say, uh, you know, we're a machine shop. That's what we do. We manufacture parts and components for our customers. They um, flow down to us blueprints and models, work instructions, other information. And they say, this is what we want. They tell us the material to machine their parts and components from. Uh, they give us the specifications, the tolerances. If there's anything else that needs to be done, like platings or coatings or protect the finishes, uh, they call that out as well. As far as this kind of company, our kind of company, there are a lot bigger and there are a lot smaller. We have 30, 35 employees. So that sort of puts us somewhat in the middle in terms of we don't by any means have the lowest overhead as compared to some, but we do have low overhead as compared to others. But then we also then have to do things in a way that, again, our, our customers can say, this company is different, we can rely upon them, they are agile, they are responsive, and this is what we need from a supplier right now for these kinds of parts and components. So. I know a lot of that probably sounded uh, fairly routine in terms of what other people might say or, or, or might do, but we really have to work hard at that. Uh, we buy the same kind of uh, manufacturing equipment as everyone else. There's a labor pool here in Connecticut that is, is getting smaller as people age, and that's certainly one of our concerns going forward that we think about a lot 
So there's employees out there. How do we attract the best? When we're competing against, in some cases, Pratt & Whitney or Sikorsky for the best of the best talent, even then, we have to think a lot about how do we differentiate ourselves. We can't offer the things that a Pratt & Whitney might in terms of benefits and those kinds of things. But there are things that we can and do offer with some people that we interview and doing that recently that resonates. Others, uh, they're looking for more of the financial and the, I guess, the security of a larger organization. So in terms of our suppliers, our customers, our employees, we have to think about how we're different, how we differentiate, how we make ourselves the kind of company that customers want to do business with, that employees want to be part of, and, and even suppliers that and in tight markets like we have now as far as material, a company that we might get a favorable decision as far as getting access to that material when there's only a certain amount available as compared to others who might want that same material. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I think you just went through about maybe 75% of the, of the main issues that small businesses face day in and day out. It's one of those things where you have to, you have to scratch, you have to claw, you have to be creative, you have to be a very good communicator. You have, you know, you have to lay out this reason or many reasons why they should want to do business with you as opposed to Sikorsky or some of the larger, you know, organizations in your space that you that you talked about. And it's it, it can be a lot of fun. It can be challenging. It can be, you know, this, this competitive spirit, right? You grew up wanting to be a football player. So I'm sure those kinds of things come out. We had a guest last week or the week before, same thing. He's, you know, he's competing with major, you know, Fortune 500 organizations that are publicly traded, publicly owned. For him, it's, it's uh, energizing, right? And I'm sure right. that that's the same for you. Right, you know, in our case, a company like Sikorsky or Pratt & Whitney, I mean, they actually are, you know, our customer or our customer's customer. But, and this is sort of the, the two-edged part of this, um, they are also heavy manufacturers as well. They have uh, extensive manufacturing capability, um, machines uh, much bigger than what we have or can afford. Uh, with more capability for that matter. So our customers also in some regard are a competitor as well in that um, we usually will do business with uh, a Smith & Wesson, for example, or Electric Boat who does the nuclear submarines for the US Navy or Pratt & Whitney. You know, if it's a really long running job, that's what they want to do. They said they want to set up their machines and just let them run and run and be as cost effective as possible. We usually get their orders that uh, are smaller in nature, but significant for us. They typically don't want to run them. We get sometimes really small orders for even from these bigger companies, like two or even four pieces, but they're complex and they're difficult. And we have quite a bit of expertise in that area. And they just don't want to 
have to deal with that kind of time and effort for just a few different pieces. So they will yes. off, off, uh, outsource that to companies like ours. And although we cannot make a, a steady living of small volume work, we can get in the door responding to those kind of opportunities, do well with them because you know we can price them so that we have a good profit margin, but then showing what we can do on those on those kinds of orders, then uh, qualify and earn a position so that we can be considered for still orders that don't fit them well, but uh, can be much more profitable for us. So that's uh, that's actually how we've gotten in the door at a lot of different places where they start slowly just to give us a, a try, evaluate us, see what we do, see how we respond. And if things do go well, then they'll start to ramp us up. For example, like electric boat, five years ago, we were doing virtually nothing with them. And now they're easily in the top two or three customers that we have as a company and, and getting larger. So it's worked out really well. So for our listeners' uh, information, you're, you're based in Bristol, Connecticut, which for the sports fans, they know that means ESPN. But the, you know, you, you talked about the labor shortage in the area. And we had, a, we had a guest on a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, in central New York, so close to your area of the world. And he mentioned the same thing, right? I mean, that, that area of the world used to be heavily manufacturing-based. And now that whole labor pool is kind of shifting. So you want to talk about that a little bit and, and how different that is for you now? Yeah, and, and that is certainly the case. Um, there are, again, for that reason, there are all kinds of companies uh, like ours, similar to ours, but also all kinds of companies in our area that were started years ago to heat treat materials, uh, plate materials, put protective finishes on. So we have a really good network for those kinds of non-machining services, which uh, helps us uh, quite a bit. But still, it, it's manufacturing. You know, in this, uh, in this world where software and coding and uh, C-O-D-I-N-G coding, that's where, where the younger people are interested. Uh, that's where they see uh, good opportunities. If it's not that, it might be uh, financial services. Uh, we're close to New York. So there's a big, big area there in terms of you know, Wall Street and investment banking and private equity and hedge funds. And so as young people come and go up through school, you know, they see these kinds of things. Well, our own son, for example, uh, his name is David. He's been at Priceline for I think the last six or seven years has done well there, really likes it. Again, it's cutting edge and it's all about using the internet and other capabilities to meet people's needs. So those kind of things are, I think, attracting a lot of younger people these days, not as interested as heavy manufacturing might be. But still, what we do, I think, is fascinating. Uh, you know, we've been here for 15 years, and I'm still fascinated by what we, knew, what we do. Not because I created it, it's just the technology that we have, where we have our engineers uh, who program 
our machines to uh, manufacture parts and components that uh, we can hold a tolerance of, of uh, two ten thousandths of an inch. As was explained to me early on, uh, that's about the width of a human hair. But that's what we control through. That's what our customers require in many cases. I, I see what we start with, like 12-foot bars of material, six-foot bars of material, or blanks that we cut out. And then I see what the end product is. And I see, and I know the tolerances and how difficult it's been to go from that bar of material to that finished product. And it still amazes me, it still fascinates me almost every day. It's So from that regard, I think as we try to get more young people into this trade and we have established some relationships with local trade schools so that we can do in, internships or part-time work or whatever, just to get these people or these young, young people who already are showing an inclination because they are going to trade school to learn how to be a CNC machinist or a CNC program. CNC, by the way, meaning computer numerically controlled. And that's the kind of uh, technology that we use. We want to get those people while they're young and interested and let them know who we are and then see if we can bring them into our company. It, it is a battle for good, uh, for good people. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, obviously with the manufacturing today being much more automated than it was in the past, I mean, you're the third, you guys are the third owners of this company. It's been around for a long time. So automation and technology has increased tremendously and will continue to do so. But one, one thing I'll just mention to you, just because it may be a beneficial connection for you, there's, there's a gentleman that we've had on the podcast a couple of different times. He has his own podcast as well. His name is Josh Zolan. He wrote a book called Blue is the New White. And it's it's been tremendous, some of the things that he's done to push forward the blue collared or the skilled trades type of organizations and, and opportunities out there, right? Yeah, I mean, you and I are both college graduates. We both have advanced degrees, actually. And, and I believe in, you know, in that if it's right for you and what you want to do. But I think that our our country has pushed this notion that that's for everybody. Everybody has to go to college. Everybody has to, you know, go this certain direction. And that's just not the case, right? I mean, there's a lot of coding and different things, like you said, that can be taught through trade schools where they can be these programmers or these engineers to run the, the machines that you need them to run. And it can be a great living. It can be something that they're proud of doing. So, you know, I can connect you with him after the show. He'd be a good connection for you, for sure. Yeah, you know, that would be great. And we have a couple of young guys in our company uh, now. And I, I just think they have a tremendous future, not only because they are really good at what they do, but again, for uh, the kind of work that we do, not only at SSI, but in similar companies as well. There's just not too many like them of that age that are that have the skill that they do and are acquiring uh, additional skills that they are. And so in another 10, 15 years or so, I mean, if we're not able to keep them at SSI, which we think a lot about that too, 
as far as how to reward them, value them, show them how much their contributions mean to us. You know, they'll, they'll be then 45, 50 years old, and there's not going to be a lot of others like them at that age ready to assume, I think, um, you know, significant positions of leadership and management, uh, regardless of the company or what kind of company that they're in that is in this general field. So I think they have great opportunities available just because of what they're already investing in and that there's not a lot of competition, so to speak, at that age that they will be competing again as they get older. All right, Gary, let's take a quick break. We'll hear a, a quick call to action for our listeners. Give us both a chance to take a quick drink of water and, and then uh, we'll come back and talk about how you bought the business, what your biggest surprises have been, disappointments, et cetera. I look forward to the second half of the show. Okay, good. Thank you. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, Please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no-obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now, back to today's program. We're back here with Gary Hutchison with SSI Manufacturing coming to us from Bristol, Connecticut. Obviously, I'm the host, Austin Peterson, coming to you from Gilbert, Arizona. We're talking to Gary about his business, like I said, SSI Manufacturing and you know, the struggles, but also the benefits and the up, you know, the the positives about owning a small business and, and the things that you can do. So, Gary, let's talk about what it was like for you to to buy this business, right? I mean, it was an existing business. It had been around for a long time at that point. You and your wife decided you were going to buy this business. So how did you do that? How did you come up with the funds to buy the business? Yeah, well, although, you know, looking back over you know, even when I was younger, I, I would say I, I've always had an interest in perhaps owning and running and managing a business at some point in my career. You know, having said that, it, it took a pretty good shove from uh, my chosen field, my chosen industry to, I think, get me here. Again, I started with uh, Kimberly Clark and their printing and writing papers uh, group. 14 years later, I joined Champion International, who was headquartered here in Connecticut and moved to Connecticut at that time with the family. Uh, They were also a a global manufacturer of those kinds of of products. But you've seen what's happened in in that industry, rapid consolidation, just company after company going out of business or downsizing. Uh, that's been going on for quite a while. When I joined Kimberly Clark again at that location, you know, the sort of the pitch at that time was this is a great industry and it will be for your entire career because literacy throughout the world is, is increasing again on a global basis. Population is increasing two and a half to three percent a year, and that means the requirement for X number of new paper mills 
every year. This is just going to be fantastic. And it seemed to be at the time. And then, you know, the disruption, disruptor of the internet and all the other ways of communicating and advertising and, and, and getting messages out that just changed the world and changed it quickly. So it was pretty obvious for a while that, that this landing path for me, as far as my career was getting shorter and shorter. So just trying to be prepared just in case. And I survived a couple of um, hostile takeovers along the way with Champion and other companies. I was always kept or retained by the acquiring company, but still, it just kept going on and on. There was a period of about five straight years where, again, we've been right here in this location ever since we moved to Connecticut, where I said to Penny, my wife, I think this is the year we're going to have to move. Uh, and then this year is the year that we're going to have to move. It was just so uncertain as far as what our future was going to be. And the children were in high school at that time. And it was just, it was, it was difficult. So we started to look and think about, okay, just in case, what do we want to do? Or being a bit more proactive to try to have the capability to make those decisions ourselves rather than being the uh, outcome of someone else's decision. You know, we started to look, and the way I did that in a lot of different ways, but the way I came across SSI, there was a website that was a um, meeting place for buyers and sellers of small businesses. And I registered with that site and checked uh, several things as far as criteria that I might be interested in. One was manufacturing. That's all that I had known. I did not necessarily want to be looking for a service company, not that there's anything wrong about that. It's just I wasn't used to it, and it wasn't what I'd grown up doing. So other criteria were location and proximity and size and the ability to maintain a certain standard of living that we had been able to develop. And for probably a year, uh, those email would be, would, would come into my inbox. Here's something that looks like it might fit. And for the most part, I uh, would just uh, glance at them and delete them. Uh, I think Penny, in, in some cases, would even look at my email before me, and she would delete them before I had a chance to look at some of these things. But finally, uh, SSI Manufacturing came along, and uh, it met all of the criteria. It's We're about Oh, 30, 35 miles away. So I have a bit of a commute, but it's okay. I've been used to that anyway. So followed up on that, um, met with the, uh, with the owner on several occasions. One of the biggest parts, obviously, was arranging the financing. Uh, we did not, you know, we had something to work with, but uh, we sort of pulled everything together. It was a combination of our, of our savings, of 401k plans of uh, an SBA back loan and uh, seller financing as well. So those four sources, uh, we pulled all that together over a period of time and finally got to the point where we could uh, we could make it happen. So from the time I first saw SSI on that website, 
the economy closed. I think it was um, about 15 or 16 months. It took a while to do all the due diligence that we did. Took a while to get all the financing to come together. A um, couple of uh, initial options we looked at uh, fell through. So we just kept looking and searching and trying to find something that would work out. And finally, we made it happen. I think that's a good lesson for anybody listening. You know, it's buying a business is not for the faint of heart. It's not, oh, I'm going to buy this. And, you know, it's pretty easy to put everything in place. Now, if you're a cash buyer, maybe. If you don't really care about, you know, doing your due diligence, then maybe. But if you're going about it the right way and you're buying it the way that most people do, where you are taking on some financing, using collateralized assets like a 401k or the SBA loan option, all those sorts of things, it takes a while. It takes a while to get through that transaction. Yeah. And and I overlooked as well a second mortgage on our house. So as Penny and I say, uh, we sort of, uh, we went all in as far as uh, the purchase of the company. And, you know, sometimes I have uh, these um, fund managers or wealth managers contact me and want to uh, help me with my portfolio. And it's a pretty simple answer. My portfolio is our company. We sort of <laughs> put it all in at that time and uh, spent some scary moments along the way. but. That's how we uh, we made it happen. It was uh, a lot of effort. And I would say as well, again, we closed in 2007. And that was right before the earthquakes of 2008. I mean that figuratively as far yeah. as uh, Wall Street and, and others. And, and one reason that caused some of that uh, disruption is there was a lot of risk being taken by fund managers and so forth on who they would invest in. And I look back at it and I say, I look at what the value we got for our second mortgage. I was shocked even at the time that we got that much value for it. So there was a willingness, uh, which worked out well for us, to um, to loan a lot uh, at that time. Now, we were able to repay that loan and and uh, and get that behind us, but uh, we were helped by that risk. Uh, people just being willing to make those kind of bets, if you will, on small companies or small businesses or whoever. Whereas a year later, we that would have never happened. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think it's I think it's a good lesson to to realize that you know everybody kind of looks at two thousand and eight and and says some of the same things that you just said, right? I mean, they they were taking risks that maybe they shouldn't have, which is true, but it also allowed good risks like you and Penny to be able to do some things that have benefited you, your family, but it's also benefited the local economy. So there does have to be some sort of balance, right? The, the difference was they were making those bets on people who weren't good risks. That's the difference. Right. And we, again, even then, trying to uh, think about what they were looking for, what would make them comfortable, what would make them inclined to uh, go forward with the loan as far as us, even then thinking about how to communicate with those people. And I think that worked out well. Yeah. 
So I, I have to ask you about what that conversation was like when it was time to make these decisions and to really go all in, right? So I, I mentioned a little earlier, I've been married for about 24 years. And my wife grew up in a family where her father worked for a very large organization his entire career. He's now 92 years old. He and his wife have been married for 70 years. He's been retired longer than he worked at that organization, still has a very strong pension, still has retirement funds, still has, you know, all those kinds of things that come with stability. And so tell me what that conversation was like when, when you and Penny made the decision to go all in. To, you literally risked everything that you had at that point. And she could have easily just said, okay, you know, the paper business, it doesn't look great, but there are plenty of other businesses that your skills would apply to, Gary. Why don't you just go get that job? So tell us what that conversation was like. Yeah, yeah. And um, and again, it did not, it wasn't just over the course of one evening or one weekend. Um, it, it wasn't, uh, even though she knew exactly what I was doing, and that's why on occasion she would get to my email before me and go ahead and delete a few things. So she knew what I was doing and why, but it didn't get really, and, and it never was tense at all, but it never really got serious until we had identified SSI and she and I were both, but me primarily, you know, doing all this due diligence and meeting with uh, banks and, and lending companies and trying to get, uh, determine what our value was for uh, a second mortgage on the house. That's when it got really serious because it meant that we were getting close to making that ultimate bet, if you will, because we really did put everything that we own uh, into the purchase of the company. Uh, you know, in the last 15 years, we've had some really good times and we're doing really well now. Uh, but there's been some really lean times where you just can't sleep because you, your house is on the line. And at that time, we did not have the second mortgage paid off. We do now, thankfully, but could have lost the house. There were vendors that we needed to pay. We tried to make sure we always paid our people first, and we did. But there were, I guess I would say, Austin, for about 18 months over one stretch, I just was never at ease. I was never at rest. I always felt this weight, uh, this worry, this burden, if you will, in terms of how are we going to make payroll next week? How are we going to pay the bank? How, how are we going to do those things? And it was heavy. And, and Penny understood that too. And now that we're in a better, much better place, gosh, just not to have that on my mind and in my heart all the time, which it was, is, you know, such a comfort. But I would say it, it ultimately came down to, uh, Penny, first of all, we, we both knew that another 10 or 15 years or more in the paper industry that might work out, but probably not, because everything was shrinking and consolidating so rapidly. But Penny had also seen... Um, from afar somewhat. She was never at work with me like she is now, but she had seen the things that I've been able to accomplish 
uh, in the larger companies working with people and divisions that I've had responsibility for and being able to go in and work with the individuals there and turn around situations significantly so that the results in those cases would enable the, the larger parent companies to sell off the vision that they wanted to, uh, to divest themselves of. I was called on, I think, three times in my career to go get this small business, although $250 million in sales, $300 million in sales. Let's get that company because we want to divest. It's not strategic. Get that business ready for sale. And you're going to have to make some changes there in order to um, have a bottom line that's going to attract a potential investor. That always took a lot of hard work, effort. I traveled quite a bit because these uh, small mills, small divisions were not in Connecticut. So I was gone from Monday to Friday night or Saturday almost every week for about four or five years. And that was difficult for Penny and the family. But she also saw the things that we're able to accomplish. So I, I guess it ultimately came down to um, her having confidence uh, in me and then knowing that we would be working together, us having confidence in each other, that whatever we encounter, we're going to be able to get through it. And a few times we've looked at each other and said, are we going to make it? But we always did. And uh, now we're much, much stronger than we were before. In fact, um, we just signed a lease to uh, relocate our facility. We've been there for 15 years, but we're going to increase our size by about 60% because we need that to show growth and be able to continue to grow. And it's a newer facility, more modern facility. We're excited about it. Our, our employees are very excited about it. We kept our search purposely really close so that we didn't lose any good people. And we were fortunate to find that kind of location. So that's, we're going to make that, we're going to relocate uh, at the end of the first quarter of next year. And that's going to be really disruptive in a very difficult, or I should say very busy time because we're really busy right now. And it's going to be really disruptive to pick up all of our machines and equipment, move them over to this other location. But when we get through that, it's, we're just gonna be really well poised for the future. Yeah, it takes uh, it takes difficult decisions to move things forward for sure. And it's, you know, it, it's constant. I mean, like you said, 15 years, you've been in the same facility and, and who knows how long, you know, SSI was in that facility before you bought it. And now all of a sudden you're making a pretty big move, even though it may not be a, a long distance move, you're making a pretty big move that's disruptive to your business, but you're doing it with an eye on where does this take us from here? Yeah, and we, uh, we it just couldn't be a long distance move because as I say all the time, and it's absolutely the truth. Uh, we are unique, we are different. We have a niche that a lot of people can't can't meet us at in terms of the kinds of materials that we machine. They're very, very difficult for the most part. We hold, I guess my my elevator pitch, if you will, is we we machine parts and components that have very complex geometries held to very close tolerances. 
and machining not only from aluminum or steel, but from some of these nickel alloys that are corrosion resistant and extreme temperature resistant. And the qualities that make them resistant to all those things make them also really difficult to cut. But our people have experience doing that. They, they are really good at it. We move away from that location, we move those people, we lose those people. When we first bought the company, again, we live in Newtown, Connecticut, Bristol is where the plant is. There was some concern we were gonna relocate down to be close to us. Well, that we would have been out of business a long time ago because you know I can't program anything, I can't run any machines. It's the people that make us special. That's why we wanted to keep it really close that we would keep that core group. Yeah, very, very smart decision. You know, as they say, your most important asset of your business walks out the door every day at four o'clock, five o'clock, you know, whatever your shift is. Uh, and there's so much truth to that. Yeah. And uh, for the reasons mentioned before, uh, again, if you're a really good CNC machinist or a really good uh, programmer, uh, there's a lot of people that would like you in their company. And we're very cognizant of that. And so Penny and Adam, he's our son-in-law, our general manager. We talk a lot about these are our bedrocks. These are our cornerstone. These people, the people who make our company set us apart, make us different, make us better. We're fortunate to have them. We value them. How can we always make sure that they know that, whether it be financially or or otherwise? And there's other ways to make them know those kind of things. So it's a business. We have to make business decisions. But we also want to and try to have sort of a family feel to the company as well. And I think we do. Most people tell us that they sense that, feel that, and like that rather than just some cold environment where you know the boss doesn't know who they are or never spends any time out on the floor and never talks to them about what's going on. You know, we do. Penny does, I do, Adam does, our other managers do. So we try to instill that kind of environment, that culture as far as our company. Well, believe it or not, we're coming to the end of our time. So I'm going to ask you one final question, then I'll let you tell people where to track you down. And obviously, anybody who's looking at working for a great company in your area of the country that does, you know, has some CNC experience, obviously, you want to talk to them. But let me have you close with this. If you could rewind the clock at this point, so 15 years into owning SSI, what would you do differently? All the way back to the very beginning, first thing I would do for sure is engage some uh, professional legal and accounting advisors. Again, we were just trying to scrape together every dollar we could to make this happen. And, and it wasn't like I was arrogant. Oh, you know, I've got a financial MBA and a marketing and I've been with Fortune 500 companies and I've looked at financial statements many, many times. I wasn't arrogant like that at all, but I didn't, I was too cheap, I guess, to uh, to spend that money when we were trying to scrape everything we could to get together to make the, the transaction happen. That was a mistake. I didn't know it at the time, but uh, that was a mistake. 
both from a, an accountant, a CPA, who we now work with all the time, a, a, a lawyer that we work with all the time. Those guys would have been so helpful if uh, we'd have gotten them involved up front and could have helped me avoid a few things uh, later on that I had to deal with since that time because I was somewhat naive in what I was agreeing to and the way we structured the, the new company. Uh, that would be one for sure. Uh, another one would be, um, we didn't really talk about this, nor did I really want to talk too much about it, but I've done more due diligence on, because the way we did it also is we bought it from a fellow and he became our 10% equity partner. So he stayed on. That was good. I didn't know anything about that business. He did. I thought that would be really good to have some continuity and to have some like inside information and and, uh, and direction on some key decisions. Should have done more due diligence with him. I should have also had a, a, a tighter performance agreement in terms of not only his activities at the company and the things that he did, but how he behaved as well. He was supposed to stay on for three years. I think he was there for six to nine months. He's just a very different person than me and managed the company in a very different way. He was successful, so I'm not saying he was wrong, I'm right. It was just completely different perspectives on managing people and working with people and communicating with people. Should have done more of that as well. I mean, those are the, I mean, that's right from the very beginning, Austin, but those would have really, both of those would have really helped out uh, going going downstream. I, I mean, honestly, both of those are, are really important messages. You know, the second one that you said, it, that due diligence is key. And there can be very, very good reasons to keep an owner on because it can, it can provide continuity. It can provide an additional benefit. It's beneficial for them too, because it may provide, you know, a second bite at the apple, so to speak. You know, there, there's opportunities there, but you got to make sure that your philosophies are lined up or there's an understanding of what it is that you're going to each accomplish and setting really smart bogeys for each to hit, to, to lead you in the right direction. So very good point there. And then the second or the first point, actually, that you made, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the, the reality is if anybody's listening to this program and they're getting ready to start a business or they already own a business and they don't have these main people in place. So a CPA, an attorney, an insurance agent, a banker and a financial advisor. And I'm going to point that out there because you mentioned you people are calling you saying, let me help you with my portfolio. There's a difference between a financial planner and an investment advisor. There are very there aren't a lot of them, but there are financial planners throughout the country who specialize in working with business owners and help to be the quarterback of that team of five people that I just mentioned to make sure that everybody's rowing in the right direction that's the right direction for the business. So everybody should have those five people on their team. Yeah. Then start with that group. I quickly realized that uh, that's advice, that's uh, expertise that I just didn't have. I would never have on my own. And I needed to get that kind of 
direction and guidance uh, on as quickly as possible. And as the previous owner, my previous partner, and I began to separate, that's when the the, the attorney came on and really, really helped. Our CPA was involved. He really helped um, un untangle all of those things. And we've, we've kept both of them ever since, and it's been, been great. Yeah. All right. Well, Gary, we're out of time. So just uh, tell the audience how to track you down if they want to get in touch with you or your company. Yeah. So uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I think that's how you first uh, found me, Austin, or contacted me. It's you know Gary Hutchison, SSI Manufacturing Technologies in Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, my email address is fairly long. It's G-H-U-T-C-H-I-S-O-N. There's not an extra N. H-U-T-C-H-I-S-O-N at S-S-I manufacturing, one word spelled out, dot com. Perfect. Well, Gary, really appreciated the conversation. I think that anybody who's listening to this episode would, would agree with me that you are, in fact, a tycoon of small biz. You guys have built a great organization. You've learned some things along the way. Every business owner does, but that doesn't detract from what you guys have been able to accomplish and what you've built since 2007 taking over. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Well, again, thank you for having me. Um, at first I thought, how are we going to keep an hour? How are we going to make an hour and fill that up? But it did go right, go by very, very quickly. Well, thanks again. And I wish you and yours a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too as well. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Arizona time for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.